Okay, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me, in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, um, I pray now that you would take away every distraction, that your word would reach our hearts, Lord. We open our hearts to you, and we ask you, Lord, to work through Brandon, to speak through Brandon, to give him the words to say, and give us hearts and ears to listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. morning. You may be seated. Ten thousand hours. In his book, Outliers, this is the number that Malcolm Gladwell uses uh, to give a picture of what it takes to gain mastery in any given subject. So whether it's a piano virtuoso or a technological innovator, Gladwell says that it requires 20 hours a week for 10 years uh, to gain mastery in any one subject. He uses all kinds of examples from the Beatles playing over almost 10,000 hours in two summers uh, to Bill Gates having access at a very early age to a computer and being obsessed with it in such a way that he got his 10,000 hours in before he turned 21. Uh, no matter who it is, Gladwell argues that you need 10,000 hours to achieve excellence in your given field. Gladwell's doing some nice little uh, cultural analysis there, but at the end of the day, what he's really saying is what my Little League coach told me over and over and over again, what you've probably heard as well if you've ever done anything, which is practice makes what? Perfect, right? Uh, In order to become good at something, very few of us are actually gifted with the natural ability to do anything without any practice at all. We all require, whether we're Bill Gates, the Beatles, or little old Brandon Kill up here, we all require practice in order to be good and perfect at anything. And that is how Paul closes the section, right? In, in verse 9 that we just read and that Mike just read, he says, what you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things, that the God of peace will be with you. In other words, he's echoing what he said last week, right? Press on, right? He says, I'm not perfect, therefore I need to practice. I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And yet, 
the title of my sermon, it's not a typo, is not practice makes perfect. Because at the beginning of verse 1, I don't know if you saw, there's a, there's a therefore there, right? Um, and of course, you know the great hermeneutical rule, whenever you see a therefore, you look for what it's there for, right? And so we want to look back just a bit at how we finished last week in Philippians, where Paul in verse 17 says, join in imitating me. So again, practice, right? Join, imitate. If you want to gain mastery of the Christian life, if you want to look like Paul, takes time and energy and fighting sin, right? It takes all of these exhortations, all of these um, implications of the gospel, continue to work themselves out in our lives. So we get another command. Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. But in verse 20, which I think is what the therefore is pointing to, less than the verse 17, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then Paul begins his section, Therefore, stand firm. Therefore, practice. Because Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead, because he has placed our citizenship not on earth, not in this jail cell that I'm writing from, but in heaven, because of the future glory and the future grace that awaits me, therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Do these things. Live out these things. So because of these things, because he will transform you, according to Paul, perfect makes practice. Because God has done this in us and will do this in us, Therefore, we stand firm. Therefore, we practice. Count how many times he says these words in the Lord. Did you, did you spot them? Look quickly. I'll give you just a second to, to scan and see if anybody can spot all of them. We'll do a little Where's Waldo in the text. So there's one in verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord. There's one in verse 2. Agree in the Lord. There's one in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord always. And then there's one in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So those three words, in the Lord, are Paul's secret. They're Paul's formula for how it is that we connect these exhortations, these commands that we're going to listen to in just a moment. These five um, commands about what it is to be a Christian, what the Christian life looks like. How do we connect those to this verse, this therefore, of our citizenship being in heaven, of Jesus transforming our lowly body? What is the connection between doing these things and Jesus having made us perfect? And it's in those three words, I think. That's why Paul says it four times in these few verses. Doing them in the Lord. We do all of these things not in ourselves, right? Not in our own righteousness. Not because they're the right thing to do. Not because some of us have more power and some of us are more spiritual than others. We do them in the Lord. In other words, the theological word for this is our union with Christ. Right? Our union with Christ. How we can accomplish these things. How we can see the resurrection lived out in our everyday life to give us unity and gentleness and peace. All of these things that we're going to see in just a moment. The secret that we want to continue to come back to is union with Christ. John Murray writing about our union with Christ, he says, Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Being united to Jesus is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. It is difficult to overstate the importance of the doctrine 
of our union with Christ. He says, it's not just one piece of the puzzle, right? Union with Christ is not just a nice piece that you glance at and then you get to the other stuff that has to do with our redemption. Union with Christ is the very reason, the very way that we are justified, sanctified, and will be glorified. The only reason any of these three things can happen is because we are united to Jesus. We are made one with Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. In this, Paul is no innovator, right? He isn't making this up. He's piggybacking off of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus says in John chapter 15? He uses the word abide. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide, right? Unless you live, unless you are connected to me as though a branch is connected to a vine, you won't bear fruit. He says, you can try all you want to over here, you little grape branch, and you can will it all you want to, right? I will produce grapes, I will produce grapes, I will produce grapes. But unless you're connected to the vine, unless you abide in me, unless you're united to Jesus... You can tape some fruit on, right? But it's only going to wither. So Paul gives us this glorious list. And we're going to break down the verses in light of Paul's list. Okay, So we're going to look at these five virtues, these five fruits of the Spirit. Unity, joy, gentleness, peace, and beauty. And Paul gives us this list. And a lot of times when we get lists, they, they feel very burdensome, right? When someone gives you a task list, it can often feel pretty impersonal. And so Paul's clear here in this first verse. He says, therefore, my brother, so immediately showing we are united, right? We're family, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Man, he's really hammering it on, isn't he? Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul wants to make clear his love for the Philippian church. He says, I'm not giving you a task list to get something from you. I'm giving you this list of virtues to cultivate because this is what Christianity is, right? This is an act of love in giving you this list. In other words, Paul has the gift of, of exhortation, right? So Paul could motivate people, but somehow he could manage to do it without being a jerk, which is, which is difficult for me, I'll be honest. I'm, either, I'm usually either passive and I'm like, well, I don't want to be a jerk, so I'll just you know, let them go. Or I'm just a jerk, right? I'm like, hey, man, get it together, figure it out. What are you doing? You're an idiot, right? I have, I have no, like, in-between. But, but one thing Paul shows us here is that the gift of exhortation doesn't give us a license to be a jerk, right? There is a way, and he models it well, I think, of, of loving people, right? Of expressing a genuine care, concern. Brothers, I love, you're my joy and my crown. So get to work, right? Let's do this together. So as we look at this list, I want to continue again to come back to this question. What does it mean to practice these things in the Lord? In other words, how does our union with Jesus get us here? So let's look at the first one, unity. He says, I entreat, and I did practice these names, so I'm right and you're wrong. Um, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat, here we go, you ready? Syntyche. Yeah, don't disagree with me. To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So I like, 
I like when I was reading this to imagine like sitting in the Philippian church, right? So imagine you are Yodia. Like you already got your mom has give, blessed you with that glorious name. So you already got that baggage you're bringing. And then you're sitting in church and you're listening. Paul, the Apostle Paul has written a letter to your church. He's just finished. So you're like, amen. You're like, our citizenship is in heaven, right? From it we wait to save the Lord Jesus Christ. So I can just picture Yodia like in the back seat, right? She, she's like, amen. Praise God. And then Epaphroditus keeps reading, right? Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord. And she's like, oh, I love Paul. Paul. I entreat you, Odia. Whoa. Hmm? Right? Ears perk up. And can you imagine maybe not being her, but sitting beside her, right? And you're try, like trying not to look over. And, you know, you're like awkwardly like, oh, my goodness. Okay, here we go. So everybody, everybody I, th- I sense based on how Paul phrases this, right? That everybody kind of knows something's brewing, right? This is not something that's been under the radar. Like Paul is in a jail cell hundreds of miles away and he knows about this. So most people in the church know there's something going on, but they're kind of, it's kind of agreed that we're not going to talk about it because it's kind of awkward. And right, you know, Epaphroditus gets up and he's like, I have a letter and just reads this thing right out in front of everybody with, with them probably present. It's incredibly awkward to, to think about, right? But one thing that we see here in these verses is that unity, Christian unity, Christian brotherhood is worth the awkwardness. Right? Unity is worth the awkwardness. Paul is not scared of awkwardness. He never mentions in lists of sins, do not, thou shalt not be awkward. Right? It doesn't come up. You see, his, his love is clear, right? So he, he starts out in love. He's, he's not just, again, he's not just a jerk for jerk's sake, Right? He starts out in love, but he doesn't dance around in vague generalities of make sure you stay unified. I'm not going to mention anybody's names because that might be kind of weird, but just, you know, in general, hopefully this one hits. Be unified. Paul goes right in, right? He says, no, this is something, this is serious. If the unity of Christ and his church is at stake, Paul isn't going to dance around. He's not going to be afraid of the awkward conversation because he knows as long as there is division within the walls of the church, its missional effectiveness outside of those walls is going to be hindered. He knows that there is a chink in the armor of Christ when the body of Christ is, is broken. And as long as there is disunity within the walls, the church's missional effectiveness is going to be hindered. And that's what Paul cares about, right? Paul wants to see churches planted. Paul wants to see lost people coming to saving faith. Paul wants to see disciples made and sent out. And he knows as long as there is disunity brewing, that's going to be hindered. And Paul won't stand for it. So he commands them, agree in the Lord. I love that. Agree in the Lord. Not fix your differences, right? Not, you know, let go and let God, whatever. He says, agree in the Lord. In other words, the foundation of your agreement is not that you don't want it to be awkward between you anymore. The foundation of your agreement is not that you want to make sure your kids can continue to play together in the playground at church. The foundation of your agreement are not these superficial things that might possibly bring you back together. Paul says, no, agree in the Lord. You have the greatest thing that you need in common. You both submit to the Lordship of Jesus. You both were sinners apart from God. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that was at work in the sons of disobedience, by whom we all, Yodia and Syntyche, once lived, living by the desires of our flesh. But God made both of you alive together in Christ. Agree in the Lord. If you can agree on nothing else, it doesn't matter. Because nothing else is as paramount and as important and as unifying as that core truth. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. 
you have that in common, you can reconcile all things. So you say, well, I just really don't like how she said that. That really, really offended me. It rubbed me the wrong way. Okay. You both love Jesus, right? Well, yeah. Well, there you go. You say, well, you know, I, you know they, they homeschool. We send our kids to public school. There's really a lot of cultural differences there. We, we you know, have different perspectives on school and family and the place of each. Okay. Do you both want your kids to love Jesus? Yeah. Do you both hope that your kids grow up to serve Jesus faithfully? Yeah. Agree in the Lord. You see, all these superficial, you know, well, that, that just really, I'm not that kind of person. All those things dissolve in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we hold in common. We are both united to Christ. We both hold fast to him. We both have no other hope apart from the hope of the cross. You see, Paul does not tell them, he doesn't take sides, right? He doesn't say, well, Yodia, you were right in this, and Syntyche, you were right in this, so if we can like, mediate both perspectives, then we can come to some common understanding. That's not a bad way to counsel, but Paul's not interested in that at all, right? He's not interested in figuring out what their common ground might be apart from the gospel. He simply says, agree in the Lord. Guys, you've got to figure this out. You see, the principle that we see here is, as Christians, it is in our court to make the first move. So he doesn't say, well, Yoda, you are more at fault, and so really you need to go, uh, Syntyche, you, can, you need to hang back because you, know, you were at some fault, but the, the scale is way tipped. He says, both of you, to both of you, you should be the first one to help the other agree in the Lord. Both of you agree in the Lord. He doesn't call one out. He doesn't take a side. He doesn't try to mediate any dispute. He doesn't even mention what the dispute is because it's not important. It doesn't matter what it is. We don't need to know what it is. Instead, he says, agree in the Lord. Are you detached this morning from someone here because you're waiting for them? You say, well, they, they did a lot more. I mean, I, I might have messed up some, but man, they're the one who's really at fault. Paul says to us this morning, agree in the Lord. As a believer in Christ, it is on you to make the first move. Even if you were in the right, your task as a believer, when the unity of the church is at stake, is to seek reconciliation. So unity requires awkwardness, but unity also requires community. So you see, he doesn't just say, so I just, I'm going to kind of hedge a little bit on what I just said. He doesn't just give it up to them, right? He doesn't just say, all right, you guys figure it out. It's nobody else's business. Did you notice that? Verse 3, I ask you also, true companion, the literal translation there is yoke fellow, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. So we don't get to unity by ourselves. We're too biased. We, We have too much sin going on. We see ourselves in the best light. We see other people in the worst light. We get offended. We don't want to go do that. It's awkward. That's why God's given us the community of Christ. That's why God's given us each other. That's why we have life groups, and that's why we have this gathering. So you can't functionally be a member of of the church hanging out off by yourself, mad at everybody. It doesn't work that way. You can't get offended at six people and never see them again. Instead, you're going to bump into them this morning, right? Now, it's going to be, you can go hide in the bathroom when you see their car pull up and all that stuff, but it's going to bring some, it's going to bring some issues, Right? You're not going to be able to go and eat together at a life group and not talk. Your other life group members are going to notice. They're going to be like, hey, what's going on with you guys? Do I need to write a letter and read it aloud to the life group here? Paul? Right? Now, this is a challenge to us. If these ladies who have worked alongside Paul, who have worked alongside the Apostle Paul 
and made his qualifications for his short-term mission teams, gone through his training, and they have the potential to cause division in the body. How much more so do you and me have potential with our awkwardness, with our rubbing against other people the wrong way to cause disunity in the body of Christ? It should be a challenge to each of us that if these ladies can, if these ladies need a community of Christians around them, in order to reconcile with each other, how much more so do we need each other? How much more so do we need people in our lives to write us a letter that says, agree in the Lord? How much more so do we need people who we call and say, look, I don't know how I'm going to talk to this person. It's going to be weird. Could you be there and, and help us mediate? Could you be the yoke fellow? I love the way that Alec Moyer says it. He says, here with this word yoke fellow, we may put our own names. So some people say that you know, that word might be a person's name. That might be their pastor. What you says, and I agree with him, that regardless, I think one reason it sounds anonymous is so that in the ages to come, you and me put our names in that. We are yoke fellows with Christ. We are disciples. It is our job, it is our task, not to stay out of other people's business, but to jump in to the mess. To possibly get our hands dirty and have two people mad at us instead of nobody, right? That's a possibility. But it's our task as believers to foster unity together. We need Pauls and yoke fellows in our life. Do you have these type of friends? Do you have friends who can call you out? You say, well, yeah, sure I do. Well, when's the last time they did? Because if you might think they would, but if they've never done it before, then there's a possibility that you're cultivating friendships that kind of stay on the surface level of superficiality. And for whatever reason, your friends aren't comfortable helping you see your own sin, helping you see your own disunity. And so if you don't have these type of friends who you can think, you know what, that, they did that a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. Maybe time to, to cultivate those kinds of friendships, to ask your friends honest questions, to say, you know what, could you help me see things in my own heart that I'm maybe not seeing? That's a hard conversation, especially if it's with your spouse. That one usually hurts. But it's worth it. It's worth it because it's better than these things stewing. right? It's better than these things staying on the back burner and continuing to fracture the body. So we have unity in Christ. We also have, according to Paul, joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. So Paul basically says, look, I know you're tired of me saying it. Right? We've had the joy together slide. You've heard the word joy 10,000 times already. Um, you've seen it on the board out there. But you know what? I'm going to say it again, and then I'm going to say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say Rejoice. Why does Paul bring this up again in his random list of Christian virtues when he's already dealt with it in chapter 1, he's dealt with it in chapter 2? Why is he bringing it up again? Pretty easy answer, right? Because we need the reminder. Charles Spurgeon said in the 19th century, I do not think the church rejoices enough. We all grumble enough and we all groan enough, but very few of us rejoice enough. I don't think much has changed in the 200 years since Spurgeon spoke those words. Very few of us rejoice enough. Very few of us don't need the reminder each day to rejoice in the Lord. And that is how we rejoice, right? We don't muster it up from good vibes or, you know, positive energy or, you know, good self-talk. Paul's not saying, look, pretend you're happy. Internalize your grief and sadness and just bottle it up, right? That's not Paul's advice. Paul's advice is to find something. Cling to the one thing that you can rejoice in. 
Right? So when, when all around our soul gives way, he then is all our hope and stay. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord because when all else goes, when you're sitting in a prison cell and everyone's abandoned you, your ministry looks like it's falling apart. You have nothing left to rejoice in that you can see. He says, rejoice in the Lord. He writes to a church facing persecution in the church at Philippi, a church where everything is not going well. Not rejoice in your attendance number last week, right? Not rejoice because that program really worked. Not even, although this is a reason to rejoice, so let the listener understand, but not even rejoice in how many people professed faith last week. But he says, rejoice in the Lord. These things are going to wax and wane, right? These things are going to come and go. And yet, Paul can say, for all time, rejoice in the Lord. John Newton told a story of a, of a man who was on his way to New York. He had received a, a massive inheritance. So he had a distant relative who had left him a state that he wasn't planning on receiving. So he's going to inherit, in, in, you know, in today's currency, millions and millions of dollars. And all he's got to do is go up to New York to get it. And so he rides his carriage. For those of you who are a little unseasoned, a carriage is like a car but had horses. Um, <laughs> He rides his carriage up to New York, and he gets just outside of the city limits, about a mile out from the estate, and his carriage breaks down. Right? So one of the horses has a bad starter plug, and um, he, it breaks down, and he says, the, how foolish would this man be? How foolish would the people in the homes next to the street think him if on his way to collect this massive inheritance, the carriage has brought him all the way out to the city, and within the hour, as he walks to this place, he's going to become a totally new rich man, and lifestyle is totally different. And all you hear is him weeping and wailing in the streets. My poor carriage. My carriage is broken. How foolish would we think this man? And Newton makes the point. What he says is, that is us when we groan. That is us when we complain against God. Now, obviously, again, there's a place and a right place for for grief and sadness and groaning. With creation itself, Paul says, groans as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And yet I sense most of us, with the Spirit's wisdom, know the difference between wailing as the psalmist does and grumbling against God. Right? Most of us know where that line is for ourselves. And how many of us go to grumble against God like this man who is on the way so close to collect the inheritance to know truly what it is to taste and see that the Lord is good and all we can see, all we can focus on is our broken carriage. And all people hear come from our lips. All people know of us is that our carriage is broken. Paul says, the carriage might be broken. Paul says, no matter how many carriages are broken, the inheritance is there. We have reason to rejoice. 1 Peter 1.9 gives us that reason very clearly. It's a much greater reward than any estate. He says, though you don't have... Oh, let me try that one again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You believe in him with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, you are united to Jesus. You have an eternity of glories awaiting you. And those, those glories begin even now with communion with your Savior. You can rejoice in the Lord. And friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know that joy, 
you've never tasted that. You've, you've tasted joys before, but they, they wax and wane. They crest with waves and then they go back down again depending on your bank account balance or your mood or, your, or the thousand other potential waves that would crest and fall and crest and fall on any given week. But you don't know that undergirding joy that when everything else collapses, you have the resting spot of Christ. If you don't know that joy, you can this morning. God can, as the psalmist says, set your feet upon a rock and put a new song in your mouth. If you would come to Christ in faith, turn from your sin and pursue Him. Believe in Jesus and with joy obtain His salvation. So God gives us in Christ unity. He gives us joy. He also gives us gentleness. My translation in the ESV translates this reasonableness. He says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Translators of the ESV are very smart men, and I love this translation. I'm going to disagree perilously with the translators here. Um, I, I like the translator a little bit of the, NS, the NASB, and also I think the NIV goes with this, gentleness. Um, so reasonableness, the reason, reason why the translators of the ESV translate it this way is it's looking back in chapter 2 to the attitude of Christ who lets his own interests go below the interests of others. In other words, he is reasonable in that he is able to see other people's interests before his own. And so they want us to see that and know that. But when I think of reasonable, I think of someone who is uh, logical, maybe a little bit dispassionate, right? What Paul is echoing here, this word, is, is actually gentleness. William Tyndale, in his translation, his early translation of the Bible, translates it softness. Let your softness be known to everyone. So whether we go with gentleness, reasonableness, softness, what we see here is a meekness that looks like the attitude of Jesus, especially as we relate to other people, right? Someone who is, is, is fleshing out that attitude of Christ that seeks the interests of others before our own. And he says, let it be known not just to Christians, not just to our closest friends, but let it be known to everyone. He's pointing us to not just inside the walls of the church, but may people know Christians. May people know your church in Philippi and your church in Ovilla as a gentle people. And I'll be honest, I pray for a lot of things for Grace Church. Every day I pray and, and try to echo language of Scripture, and I pray systematically for, for Grace Church. I can't remember the last time I prayed for Grace Church to be known by our gentleness. I've prayed for Grace Church to be known by our love for God's Word. I've prayed for Grace Church to be known for our passion for the Great Commission. I've prayed for Grace Church to be known for our holy lives and the way that we, um, we fight sin. But I haven't prayed for, for grace, and I think this is, this is wrongly in my, in my pastoral heart, to be known for our gentleness. As we are known for many things, are we known and are we praying to be known, as Paul commands us here, to be known for our softness? Now, I can, even as I say that, I kind of squirm, right? Softness. We're a pillar and buttress of truth. Pillars aren't soft, right? I sense probably two objections to this. One is, is probably from the men, which is gentleness. That's nice, yeah. That's, let my wife cultivate that one, right? <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good fruit of the Spirit. I need to focus on some other ones, and uh, I'll let the ladies carry the 50% load of the gentleness. And that's a 
potentially great application if Paul would have said, ladies, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Unfortunately, for me, as much as anyone, Paul didn't say that, right? Paul just says, let your, it's not a feminine noun, it's a plural, your, everyone. I'm writing to the church. More, more than that, though, even more than the textual point, Jesus was known as one who was gentle and lowly in heart, Matthew tells us. This is Jesus, right? Gentle and lowly in heart. Now, we've got some, some pretty tough guys in the room here, all right? I'm not one of them. I see my own blood, and I'm, I'm dropping to the floor, right? I'm not, I'm not a tough guy. But I'm pretty sure that if Rick Crab saw his own blood, he would start a fire and cauterize the wound by himself, right? So we've got guys in this room who are tough, okay? Uh, we've got guys in this room who have cultivated a, a godly um, representation of toughness. They've reflected Jesus in this way because Jesus, although he was gentle and lowly at heart, he was tougher than any man in this room. Jesus went to a cross on purpose. Jesus set aside his own interests And on behalf of others, sacrificially and courageously, took on not only the physical excruciation of the cross of Christ, but bore the wrath of Almighty God. The sin that you and I had accrued, the sin that generations had accrued, Jesus drank the cup to the last drop. So Jesus was not soft in that sense. And yet... Jesus, the toughest man who's, who's ever lived, was called in Matthew gentle and lowly in heart. Brothers, if Jesus can be gentle, if Jesus can be known for his softness, you risk no man cards to be known for yours as well. The second objection that I sense might be coming because it came in my mind and it has before is, well, you know, I'm just a blunt person, right? God, God wired me in a certain way. That I'm just a blunt person. I've said this before. I've said it pretty recently, right? Well, you know, I mean, yeah, gentleness. I appreciate those fellows who are gentle, but we need some truth tellers, right? I'm just that's just the way I'm wired. I'm blunt. Most of you are like nodding, and you're kind of hurting my feelings a little bit, but um, that's okay. You get what you receive. So, um, but I've said this before, right? And as I'm reading this passage, God, I'll be honest, convicted me. He said, "You're not blunt. You're just a jerk. <laughs> like that's not that's not a thing, right?" Bluntness, so, we, so prophetic bluntness is a good thing. But as I'm reading this text and thinking about, am I known? Do people know me? Do people say, Brandon, that's a gentle guy. Well, they, don't, they shouldn't know me that. I'm just a blunt person. Well, if that's true, if I can't be known by my gentleness because I'm a blunt person, that's not a personality issue, right? That's a sin issue. So if, if someone came to me and said, and I'm... I'm in a pastoral counseling room, someone said, look, I, I can't have peace. I'm just an anxious person. Well, you might be an anxious person, which means you need to strive harder to cultivate peace. And we'll talk about that in just a moment with prayer, right? You come to me in, as a, in, a, in a pastoral counseling session and say, you know what? I'm just an angry person. I'm going to yell at my family. That's just what I'm going to do because I'm an angry person. I just I can't help it. I, grow, I get angry and I, I, my top blows off. That's who I am. Well, maybe it is. But if you're in Christ, that's who you were, not who you will be. So cultivate patience, right? Someone comes to me and say, you know what? I don't, I mean, it's that whole self control thing. I'm just not disciplined. 
I'm, I'm an undisciplined person. That's just how I'm wired. Well, I'm sorry, but the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You're united to Jesus, who is the most self-controlled person in the world. Continue to cultivate that. Continue to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. You can because you're connected to Him. You are, in many senses, Him. You are one with Christ. You are in the Lord. You are no longer an angry person. You are no longer an undisciplined person. And I am no longer a blunt person. Christ calls me and calls you to be gentle. So we need truth tellers in the church. We do. We don't need people who are passive. But we need truth tellers who are sharp and not blunt. All right, so a dagger, a dagger can be pretty blunt. Right? Because the only point of a dagger is to wound. As long as it can pierce the skin... It doesn't matter. You don't sharpen your dagger every day. You're just going to jab somebody with it, right? But a scalpel cannot be blunt because a scalpel is meant to heal. A scalpel must be sharp. A scalpel does sometimes wound, but it wounds for the purpose of healing. And if it's blunt, you've got to get a new scalpel, right? So in the same way, we must be truth-tellers, but like Jesus... We must tell the truth in a way that is gentle and kind. We must be known not just for our stands for truth, not just for our stands for the faith, but we must also be known for our gentleness, for our care, and for our love. Let your reasonableness, gentleness, be known to everyone. And then we get this random, seemingly random sentence. The Lord is at hand. And then he keeps going. Do not be anxious. What in the world is that doing there? The Lord is at hand. Well, the short answer is, I'm not sure, um, but I've got some ideas. The Lord is at hand. So a, a, couple, if you, a couple commentators would, would say that this is the Lord's return is at hand. The Lord's return is imminent. Um, I think that's fair. When, when God talks in his word about Jesus coming soon, he says his return is near. But here, this word at hand, this word is simply the word for near. It's the same word of God is near to the brokenhearted. And so I think there is, in the back of our minds, the Lord is at hand, His return is coming. But I think more pressing, Paul is taking an intermission in his list. He's pausing in his list of commands to remind us of this truth, that the Lord is near. In other words, you are His, and He is not far off. As these commands continue to pile, do not lose hope, for you are in Christ. You can do these things in the Lord. He is not far away. One commentator says the presence of God can become easily a creedal formula rather than a living reality. And I think what Paul is getting at here is you don't just believe that God is near. We don't just want you, I don't just want you to know that God is near. I want you to experience God's nearness. I want you to feel God's nearness. And one way we can cultivate this, one way we can know and experience and feel in our affections, in our souls, that God is near is in what he's just about to talk about, which is prayer. So the fourth virtue that Paul is commending to us is a peace that comes through prayerfulness. So as we said before, Paul has every reason to worry. If anybody was an anxious, had reasons to be anxious, it was the Apostle Paul sitting in jail, abandoned by his friends. And yet Paul gives us advice on how not to be anxious. Anyone's qualified, moreover, to give us advice on how to combat Anxiety when situations pile on and you have every reason, every good reason, to feel anxiety. It's the Apostle Paul. And here what Paul does is he makes an explicit connection for us between anxiety and prayerlessness. 
And he says these two things are mutual. They are connected, right? So while I do think it's possible to be anxious and it not be as a result of our prayerlessness, the reason I believe this is because Jesus sweat drops of blood while he was in prayer, right? And so not every feeling of anxiety is directly correlated with our lack of or ability to pray. So in other words, just because you're less anxious than someone else doesn't necessarily mean you're a better prayer, right? But what Paul is saying here I think is, is pretty profound. In other words, if we want to combat anxiety, both the weighty ones that actually matter and are, are very heavy, right? The things in our lives that, uh, that drive us to anxiety and, and they're, they're profound and big, and also those little superficial things that pile up and really a year from now, we're going to look back and say, that was really dumb for me to worry about, right? Both on any side of the spectrum, Paul says both of those can be combated and both of those can be tended by prayer. And I think the connection that Paul gives us in prayer and anxiety is what does prayer do? Prayer is declaring dependence on God. It is actively, not just believing in our minds, but believing in our actions that God is sovereign. In other words, if anxiety is about control, right, and that's what anxiety is, ultimately, um, maybe not for you, but it is for me. If anxiety is about control, whether we're feeling anxious because we lost control, or we're feeling anxious because we feel like we can regain control by feeling anxious about it, right? Do you do this? Where it's like, okay, I don't have control over the situation, but maybe if I worry some more, that will change it, right? It's not logical, it makes no sense, but we do it, right? Okay, I can't do anything about it except worry, so I got to worry, right? And if I, if I amp up the worry, somehow that's going to fix it. It doesn't work, right? But we do it. But what is prayer? Prayer is coming to God simply to say, I am not sovereign. My anxiety is not going to fix this. And thank God I'm not sovereign. Because I have a good Father. Prayer is coming to God even amidst our anxieties, amidst our worries, amidst the things of life that are piling on our backs and saying, I don't know why this is happening, Lord, but I know I can bring it to you. I'm dependent on you. I need your grace today. There is a reason for whatever is causing my anxiety. I'm not sure what it is. But what I do know is that you are sovereign and you are good and your purposes are true. You see, Psalm 127 says, In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. But God gives sleep to the one he loves. As we feel anxiety, as we feel stress, may it drive our knees to grow weary, and may it drive our heads to find rest. Anxieties are opportunities for us to be reminded of our own dependence upon a sovereign God. I love the way Tim Keller says this. He says, prayer is the way we know God and the way we finally treat God as God. love that phrase. Prayer is the way we treat God as God. Prayer is the way we come to our Father and say, I am not God, but you are. And in this amazing turn of events, we have a guarantee that God will hear us. 
We have a guarantee that as we come, we don't come as a beggar asking for a few crumbs from the table. But do you remember our citizenship is in heaven? We are united to God's only Son. When God looks at us and hears our voice, He does not hear the voice of a blind beggar. He hears the voice of His Son. If I hear a random voice in the middle of the night asking me for a cup of water, I'm probably going to get a baseball bat. But if I hear the voice of my son asking me for a cup of water, I'm going to get out of bed and get him a cup of water. And because I'm not God, I'm going to grumble about it. But I am going to get him water, right? This is how God treats us. Not because we are just worthy of God to stoop down and answer our prayers, but because we are united to Jesus. And in a garden 2,000 years ago, Jesus' prayers were forsaken. Jesus' prayers were cast off of God's ears. Jesus asked for the cup to pass. And for the first time in eternity, God did not grant His Son His request. You see, in the garden, Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we merited. But in turn, our prayers get the reception that He merits. And so when you come to God, you do not have to beg for a hearing. God hears you in the same way that he hears Jesus because you are united to Christ. You are one with Christ. When I was the pastor of a small country church a few years ago, we used to sing this song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, at the time, I kind of thought it was a little hokey and cheesy, but I went with it. And now, I guess five, six years later, something like that, as I've matured a little bit, I really like this song. And I really like its doctrine on prayer. I'll read you a verse from it. It says, What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. What a peace we forfeit. What a needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. May we take all of our sorrows and troubles to Jesus in prayer and find rest. All right, finally and fifthly, the thing that Paul calls us to cultivate is beauty. Beauty is my summary of all of these words that Paul lists. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, whatever is good, true, and beautiful. Paul just gives this great catch-all term of, you know what, if I don't have a command for it and you're not sure what you should do, just pursue the good, pursue the pure, pursue the beautiful. If you have questions, ask God for guidance. But you see how this flips the script from asking, well, can I do that? How far can I go to, is that good? Is that beautiful? Does that cause me to greater, does that give me greater depths of worship? Or does that hinder my worship? Does that keep me from the good and the beautiful and the true? Or does that contribute to the good, the beautiful, and the true? So Paul just gives us this great little measuring stick of, you know what, I don't have room to give everything you should do and not do. But pursue beauty. Pursue truth. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Paul uses this glorious catch-all to tell us, Guard your heart. Know yourself. What you put in comes out. Right? So pursue that which is good. And in turn, that will come out. That will flow. And I love the way he ends the passage. And the God of peace will be with you. 
That's beautiful in itself, if he had never used that phrase again, but he has. And he's done it in Romans 16. I want you to turn with me to Romans 16, I promise I'll end there. Romans 16, chapter 20. I'm oh, sorry, chapter 16, verse 20. He gives them a similar exhortation in Romans, verse 19. He says, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So again, that exhortation to pursue the good. And he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now that's something. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. All right, so those of you who are here for the Genesis series, who crushes Satan under his feet? Who has his heel bruised, according to Genesis 3, so that the serpent's head can be crushed? Jesus, good answer. Jesus crushes the serpent's head. It's not up to us to crush the serpent's head. The serpent's head was crushed when Jesus walked out of the grave, right? The stone rolled right on top of the serpent. Jesus was like, oh, ow, sorry about that. Jesus crushed the serpent's head. And yet, what does Paul say here? He will soon crush the serpent under your feet. This is the glory of our union with Christ, brothers and sisters. Because we are united to Jesus, because we have been united to Him in a death like His, we will be united to Him in a resurrection like His. And whatever evil and trials and troubles we face, whatever danger we face as we go out into the world and enter into the mess of disunity and dysfunctionality, whatever dangers we face as we go to the nations with the gospel, we have the hope that the God of peace is near and that this is the same God of peace who will one day use our feet as we are united to Jesus' feet to crush that same serpent's head. You have the victory. Dear brothers and sisters, if you are following Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees not your sin, but your Savior. And it is your very feet, united to Jesus's, that will crush the serpent's head, just as he has already crushed the serpent's head on the cross of Christ. Practice these things in the Lord, because you are Christ, and Christ is yours. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you again. As we draw to a close next week in the book of Philippians for your glorious letter to this church. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, for the way that he models so well how to practice these things. And Lord, we pray for your, your Spirit. Lord, these are simply fruits of the Spirit. We need your Spirit's power. And we can only access your Spirit's power through the Savior, Jesus. So, Father, help us to live out the truth that we are one with Christ, that we are in the Lord. Lord, I pray that we would pursue, that we would stand firm, and that your grace would be made manifest, would be made true through us. That people would know us and would know Grace Church as people who are gentle, as people who are unified. Lord, most of all, as people who are like Christ. Lord, give us a hunger for Jesus today. So we pray. Amen.